0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. This is a special Advent mini-season of Sunday School in which we are going to talk all about the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by our Sunday School teacher and scriptural scholar extraordinaire, Scott
1: Powell. Scott? Scott? Hello, everybody. Thanks, JD, for having me back. I, we loved doing season one and we're really excited that, uh, folks are joining us for season, for this. It's not quite season two. Yeah. It's so. like, it's our advent mini season is what it is. Advent mini season. Yeah. Happy advent, Scott. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> oh,
0: ho, ho, ho to you as well. Yeah. So what are we going to do? What is our goal here? What what you and I wanted to do, Scott, was put together uh, a deep dive into scripture that people could use uh, during Advent to maybe guide their prayer a little bit and to give them some images and some figures from the Bible with whom they could pray.
1: Yeah. One of the things I I love about this idea, I want to walk through a little bit of the birth itself, but one of the things that we find when we begin to study the gospel stories surrounding Jesus's birth is there is the story of the birth, which is actually uh, fairly small, But there's a lot of things surrounding the birth of Jesus, which I think is really appropriate for Advent because Advent is a long preparation time as we get ready for this sort of singular event of Christ's birth. But there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. And that's the way that actually the Gospel of Luke tells this story. There's a lot of background and prep work and preparation for the birth of Jesus.
0: And that's what we're going to do. In the next three episodes, we're going to dive into the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke to understand something about the Lord's preparation of his people. Yeah for the birth of the Lord, and then the Lord's preparation of some very particular people for his birth and coming. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Luke gives us the, the lion's share of the the narrative around the birth of Jesus. We're going to delve a little bit, like here and there, we might poke into Matthew, who gives us uh, some information as well. And we'll, there's a couple stories that I just think are neat, but we'll use those sort of to highlight. But what we're going to do is actually walk through, yeah, these first two chapters of Luke, which is really the Gospels that give us the the, the story that we're familiar with. One of the reasons I'm excited about this is that For a lot of us, I imagine, a lot of our listeners, these are stories that are relatively familiar to us. We've heard this stuff before. Some of the language and the characters and the events are familiar to us. And I like taking events that are fairly familiar and going even deeper and and trying to kind of unpack the the story behind the story, the stuff that we might not be aware of.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm really – that sounds great. Yeah. So in this first episode of our Advent mini-season of Sunday School – What are we going to start with? Who are we going to start with?
1: Yeah, so the way that Luke – the reason I love Luke's telling of the story in a particular way, Luke is a masterful storyteller. And the way that Luke sets up his story is – it's almost like a Shakespearean play. I I love Shakespeare. And the way that Shakespeare tends to set up his stories is that before the main character, before the protagonist shows up – You get the chorus, the background cast Oh wow! will come and introduce themselves and set the stage literally for the main character. Oh, that's really neat. Which is exactly what Luke does. And so the background cast preparing us for Jesus are three couples. The first one is, of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh So as Luke begins, we don't actually get Mary and Joseph for a while down the trail. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are introduced to us first, and we'll find out that they are both from the priestly tribe of Israel. So they're a priestly family. Next, we're introduced to Mary and Joseph, who we have probably the most familiarity with. And Mary is about to marry into the royal family. So Joseph is a direct descendant of King David, the kingship that has um, gone either into exile or hiding or has been destroyed as far as anybody knows. Mm -hmm. So they are a royal family. And then after the birth of Jesus, we're introduced to two other characters who are prophets named Simeon and Anna. Mm -hmm. And so the priest, prophet, and king, or the priest, king, and prophet – Priests, kings, and prophets all come onto the stage to prepare us in a certain sense for the birth of the priest, prophet, and king. Yeah. Okay, so this first story that we're going to talk about today, it's Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And their story begins in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5 and go through verse 23. And then we're going to jump to the tail end of their story, which is in verse 57 through 80. Okay, so Luke 5 through 23 and then 57 through 80. Yeah, Luke 1, 5 through 23, and then 57 through 80. Luke 1,
0: 5 through 23, Luke 1, through 80. If you've already read that and you want to skip ahead to our conversation, you can skip ahead in this podcast to Minute 9. If you haven't read that or you just want to hear it read again, here's Pillar co-founder Ed Condon.
2: In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, and unable to speak, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child... Will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Son shall visit us from on high, and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel.
1: So I mentioned uh, how much I love Luke's telling of the story, and part of what I love about Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus has to do with Luke's own background. And just just a quick word about this. Luke, of course, was not one of the 12 apostles, and so the fact that he has an entire gospel ascribed to him is, is sort of an interesting reality. For all the gospels to have actually made it within the canon of the Bible, they had to be apostolic. So in other words, they had to be tied to an apostle. Yeah. Mark was the other one who's not actually an apostle, but as we have discussed in a previous podcast, he was believed to be the, uh, the scribe and the, the disciple of Peter. Peter. So it's the gospel of Peter. Mm-hmm. Luke accompanies for a long time Paul, and he shows up in a number of the Pauline epistles as a co-worker of St. Paul. So he is associated, again, in an apostolic way. But what's unique about Luke is that he's not only the only gospel writer, but he's only the only writer of a New Testament book who is not Jewish. He's an outsider in a certain sense. He's not part of the household of Israel. And so I mentioned that we'll, we'll probably look a little bit at the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is primarily writing to a Jewish audience. And uh-huh. so he frames the birth of Jesus around the fulfillment of the prophecies of David and all of the things that Israel has been expecting. Luke will do the same things, but his very person is suggesting that Jesus' birth is not just a fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of Israel, but it's a fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of all of humanity. And so just as Jesus, I'm sorry, just as Matthew will give a genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of his book in which he traces Jesus's family line back to Abraham, Luke will also give a genealogy, but he'll trace it all the way back to Adam. Because what they're doing in tandem with each other is showing, yes, he's the savior of Israel, but he's also the savior of the world. Mm -hmm. And so Luke embodies that in, I think, a really beautiful, profound way. Yeah. So he, of course, was the, the Gentile physician who, again, accompanies and works alongside of Paul. So I want to drop us into the story in chapter 1, verse 5. And there's a really important uh, historical marker that I think is really easy to overlook. So what, John sa- uh, what Luke says after his little prologue about who he is and why he's writing this gospel, he says, chapter 1, verse 5, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It said they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Okay, more on that in a second, but that first line in verse five, right? In the days of Herod. Now, for many of us, we've probably heard this before. Maybe you've even been to, uh, you know, a Christmas Eve mass, like a midnight mass, where the uh, the Roman Martyrology is read, and it kind of situ. I I love the Roman Martyrology, by the way. That's read at the midnight mass, um, yeah, which
0: kind of tells you exactly the time of the hit of the what's happening in the world and yeah. the whole, whole world was a piece that, that thing. yeah, because yeah. and
1: I love it because it situates us in time mm-hmm. and because God chose God could have done whatever he wanted to, but he chose a particular moment in human history to break into the earthly reality, to break into time. And time matters. It matters which Olympiad it was in the Roman martyrology. Mm -hmm. It matters who was Caesar. You know, it matters how many years it had been since David and et cetera, et cetera. So even when I was a little kid and I didn't know what was going on, I remember really loving that at the Midnight Mass when I sit there, kind of confused and tired and half falling asleep. But I love the Roman martyrology. Luke is doing kind of something like that by saying in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, Most of us, if you've studied the Bible or paid attention at Mass, you've probably heard of Herod. There are a number of different Herods. It's a a family name. There's four Herods throughout the New Testament, as a matter of fact. But saying in the time of Herod, it's not just a, a little time marker. That would have had really deep emotional implications for the hearers. Because Herod, starting with Herod the Great, who actually lived previous to this, Herod's kingship marked, I think, one of the darkest times in the history of the people of Israel. Oh, really? And to understand really what, what Luke is gonna do and what he's trying to unpack for us, we have to understand where Israel is and what's happening at this moment in time, right? Yeah. So I think you could you could you could trace where the narrative is is meant to take us back to the person of Abraham. Uh-huh. I, I mentioned Abraham a minute ago. And in the story of Abraham, back in the book way back in the book of Genesis, uh-huh. Abraham is sort of the, the point where God begins to form the people that will become Israel. He right. becomes the first patriarch of that will, you know, be the, the foundation of this people who will that grow throughout the tells adulthood. Abraham
0: that he'll be the father of many and number of the stars and... That's things,
1: exactly yeah. right. So so Abraham, when we meet him, he's barren. He mm-hmm. he and his wife, Sarai, cannot have children, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth, we're going to find out. So there's an, a, a resonance there. But God promises, like you said, he makes a promise to Abraham that this deep longing that he has for children is going to be fulfilled, but it's going to be fulfilled, you know, times a million, right? He's going to have so many descendants that it's going to be like the stars that you can't even count count, or the sand on the seashore. Mm -hmm. So he says, okay, Abram, you're going to have, before his name was Abraham, it was Abram. So God says, you're going to have descendants. So promise number one that sort of informs the Israelite people on who they are is this first promise to Abraham that you're going to have descendants. Israel is the fruit of that promise. They are the chosen people because they're the promised people, Mm -hmm. the descendants of Abraham. But God says, and this is back in Genesis 12, to Abraham that through your descendants, there's going to be three other promises, three very distinct promises. The first one is that they're going to have a land. There will be a promised land. So Abraham, remember when we meet him, he's kind of itinerant. He's on the road. He's going to a place that God hasn't revealed yet. Yeah. And so Abraham is told your children, your descendants, they're going to have a land, a home, which is why later on we call Israel the promised land. Yeah. Because it was promised to Abraham. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a, a home, a land. You're going to have a great name, and mm-hmm. the name in Hebrew for for name is Shem, which doesn't imply just a name like you're JD. Hi JD, but it implies a dynasty, a name that is renowned, that is known throughout the world, okay. um, and it always has political connotations, right? So the the Elizabethan era that England just experienced for this long period of time, sure. The, the Ming Dynasty, the Davidic kingship, right? A kingdom that's associated with a family name. Herod is one of those. The Herod I keep family. thinking
0: about. Uh, I this will seem make me seem very. American in my cultural references, but I keep thinking about the importance of the of his name to Alexander Hamilton in the musical Hamilton, like where the world's going to know
1: my name, and it's like I'm going to yeah. be this thing because no, that's I'm right. gonna give something to my name. Yeah, no, that's that's important. Be- oh, okay, cool. But, but, but that's a human drive to right. be known, sure, of course, and yeah. that's what Hamilton's doing. Um, I thought you were going to say that, like the Kennedy family. Oh, we no, talk I was about it, but the, in the history of our country, there's a family that uh-huh. there's a lot of politicians. It's like the wow, there are Kennedy, sure, yeah, yeah, or the Bushes yeah. or something like right, that. Uh-huh. Political dynasties, yeah. So in other words, that's a promise. So land, name, and then thirdly, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Uh-huh. Through you, all generations will be blessed, he's told. Yeah. So those three promises, four really, one is kind of an umbrella under which the rest of them fall. So descendants, lots of them. Yeah. And then those descendants will have land and a kingdom, a dynasty, and it be a blessing to the world. Yeah. Those are the things that the whole Old Testament hinges on, yeah. is when is God going to fulfill these things? Right. And so they, at one point, yeah, they do receive the promised land. They get to go into the place of Canaan, and it becomes the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. But they're constantly losing it, right? They're expelled from the land from the, from the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they're constantly getting taken into slavery, and the land is constantly overtaken by other nations and foreign powers. And so this promise that God makes to Israel, that they're going to have land, throughout the course of the Old Testament, doesn't go great, right? Yeah. So that's promise number one. Promise number two is the promise of the kingship, which eventually they have a guy named King David. I mentioned the Davidic dynasty. Yeah. And every king who follows David is called a Davidic king. They Uh actually hold the title of the most – he wasn't even the first king. That was Saul. Right. But he becomes the most prominent member of the family. Uh But even that throughout the course of the Old Testament, you know, by the time the Old Testament ends, all of these – think by the time the Old Testament ends. They all sort of – have some fulfillment to some degree in the Old Testament. There is land, there is a kingship, and to some degree Israel does act as a blessing sometimes. Remember King Solomon? There's a moment in Solomon's reign where his wisdom is so great, other people from nations and kingdoms come to seek out his wisdom, and they're influential. But by the time the New Testament begins, right, by the time Mark's narrative is taking place, all of these things lie in tatters. So the first one, remember the, the descendancy, by the time that Jesus is born, we'll use him as the historical marker, right? By the time that Jesus is born as a Jew, as a member of the house of Israel, most of Israel is gone. Yeah. It just is. The 10 of the 12 tribes were annihilated in the 700s BC. They were completely wiped out. And the rest that remained, many of them were taken off into slavery in Babylon and they were killed off. So by the time you have Jesus, all that remains is a, a fraction of, of what the people, used to be Israel. The, of yeah. the people. Okay. Of and the, the people too? themselves. Well, the okay. So that so problem number one, the people of Israel. Problem number two is the land of Israel. So the descendancy is is not looking good. There's a fraction of what the family used to be. Mm. The land, by the time the New Testament begins, the land they're in the land. They live in the Holy Land, but it's not theirs. Yeah. And ever since the Babylonian exile, it was controlled by first Babylon and then the Medo Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. So it's like living in your family's, like in your grandma's house, but there's a landlord who is charging you exorbitant rent to live there or something. Yeah, right. So the descendancy is not looking good. The land is not theirs. The kingdom has been stripped, right? The Davidic kingdom uh, has, has, for all anyone knows, died off. In the Mm -hmm. Babylonian exile, the last sitting king, I think his name was Zedekiah, is cut down and killed by the Babylonians on the plains of Jericho. Which is the exact spot where they actually conquered the promised land to begin with? Oh yeah, they lose it there. So the oh, king is yeah. gone, and this reference point of the days of Herod, like the place where they went around with the trumpets—that's yeah, right. That's the same place where the Davidic kingship comes to its end on the yeah. battlefield. Yeah, it's remarkable. That's poetic. The, the imagery yeah. is yeah. yeah about is poetic. that, yeah. But they would have remembered that. I mean, it's, it's a painful history. Who would forget it? And so to bring up Herod, who is the, supposed he took the title of king of the Jews, mm-hmm. right? It's an insult because he wasn't even Jewish. He was Edomayan who was a, a, a traditional enemy people, but he married into the family of the Maccabees, eventually killed off all of his relatives and went to Caesar and said, if I give you enough money, will you make me king of the Jews? And Caesar said, sure. So this reference point of wow. the days of Herod is this brutal reminder of what we had lost. Wow. We lost our people. We lost our land. We lost our king. And Lest we are a blessing to the nations, the prophets actually say that Israel had become an eyesore to the nations.
0: So I sometimes think that the Herods of the New Testament are bad guys because they're like vicious or something like that. But it's not—it's not, it's not the, only their personal vice; it's that they represent a kind of almost a blasphemy of God's promises to Israel.
1: That's absolutely right. It's wow. both in Herod the Great. So the the first of them, he was hor- he was the one that married into the Maccabee family and literally killed everybody, so yeah. that he was the last remaining person of this this dynasty. But his children are, some of them are more boneheaded than others, historically speaking, but the, what they represent is yeah. is horrifying. Yeah, And so that's the way the New Testament begins. And that's important because remember, for the people of God, these aren't nice ideas. These aren't aspirations. We right. aspire to have land and be a great people and be a blessing uh, and have a great kingdom. It's promises that God made. So the fact that the New Testament begins this way calls into question God's integrity. Is God going to be faithful or not? Which is why... People are so riled up at this time, wondering, is God going to show up? And one thing I want to add about that, last, because this does set us up for, for what we're yeah. going to say next. The mark, the sign, very publicly speaking, that we are not living in God's blessing. Because that's mm-hmm. everybody, again, it, it's a weird situation because it's not like the Exodus in Egypt where we're off in a foreign land. It's not like we're all in Babylon. We're actually home, but we're in a home that we know is not right. We're in a home where things are off. And the greatest sign that things were off. So if you remember, there's a line back in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel and all of the prophets who are contemporary to him are telling Israel, hey, you guys have gone off the rails. You've broken the covenants. You're far from the promises and the ways of God. You have to turn back. And the response of the people, and this shows up in a big way in the book of Jeremiah, they say, we're fine. We're okay. You know why? Why? Because God's presence is up on that house in the hill. Right. We have God's presence in the tabernacle, which is at the heart of the temple up on the hill, so they can't touch us. I mean, we've seen victories. There was a a, a battle that had happened just prior to that with the Assyrians where Israel, Jerusalem rather, was miraculously spared, which kind of gave everybody this overconfidence that, well, (laughs) because we have God in the temple. Everything's fine. Everything's fine.
0: God is present in the temple in some way. We have a proto-real presence in a certain way, so everything's okay
1: but it was a real presence yeah. and that's the thing i mean it, there was a, there was a tangible nature to god's presence in the tabernacle it wasn't under the appearance of bread and wine it was the um, under the appearance of smoke and uh, cloud and it was called the shekinah right and so just before jerusalem is destroyed and sacked ezekiel has this vision because the people are saying we're fine god's up there he, the shekinah is in the holy of holies we're cool and how long ago is that before jesus uh, about 600 years okay so 600 years almost before 600 jesus. years yeah okay Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory cloud, the Shekinah, the, which was shorthand for the glory of the Lord. He sees the Shekinah, the cloud, which was the cloud that led them, remember, out of Egypt in the Exodus yeah. story. Same so that thing. cloud has been in the tabernacle, in the temple this whole time? That's absolutely right. Oh my goodness. No, that's absolutely right. I can't believe I never heard this. Well, it's it's remarkable for two reasons. Number one, it's this reminder that the presence of God in the tabernacle always had a tangible, visible reality. Yeah. It was never a metaphor for something. Right. right? And it always, the reason that they had the menorah burning outside of the Holy of Holies was like the vigil candle that signaled God's presence is inside. Yeah. So this tradition is longstanding. But Ezekiel then sees that presence, sees the cloud, leave the Holy of Holies, go through the courts of the temple, go out the East Gates, jet across the Kidron Valley and go off the Mount of Olives. But that's a vision. Is that, did it happen? Presumably, yes. It was a vision he was having, but presumably it was a vision of the reality. Because just after that vision, Jerusalem is sacked and it's destroyed. And the, and temple, the temple was, was destroyed. Waste. And when the temple was built again, there's no Shekinah. No, that's that's absolutely right. So the temple is rebuilt, but no one ever sees the Shekinah come back. There's no counter vision, right? And Ezekiel says repeatedly, so do other prophets, that if you build the temple, rebuild it, because God's presence will come back. The glory of the Lord will someday return. So by the time of Jesus, in the days of Herod... Everyone's still waiting for that presence to come is, that, back. is
0: everyone waiting, or does everyone think, "Oh no, that was just a sort of"? We used to have this mythopoeic religion, and now we're sort of
1: in cerebral about it. Are it's people a- really hoping that it's going to come? Yes. So, I mean, it, it, what you ask is complicated because Judaism was pretty fractured even in those days. So, different people. You know, what do all Catholics believe about X? Well, there's a bunch of Catholics that believe this, and right. people who are not well formed and who believe this. You know, but people expected, certainly the Pharisees, for example, the the people who took on the religious leadership of the people. Yeah. They're all waiting for him to come back. Wow. And yeah, again, people might have gotten complacent or forgot about it or said, well, maybe it's just a metaphor. But most people, I think it's safe to say we're expecting a physical return. Wow. So that's where Luke drops you in. But but those problems are necessary because in a certain sense, the prayer on the heart and on the lips of all the people of Israel at this time in history is how long, O Lord? How much longer are we stuck in exile? How much longer until you're gonna set things right, right? So that's all packaged into that little line in the days of Herod. Wow. I think that whole narrative is back there. So in those days, there was this priest named Zechariah. He was at the division of Abijah. He had a wife of the daughters of Aaron. And Aaron, remember, was the high priest. And so the family line of Aaron – Aaron was, the
0: first Aaron. The first Aaron, Aaron Pope yeah.
1: St. Aaron the first of Moses. Did you say Pope St. Aaron the first? I did. <laughs> That's a good thing. You know who I mean though. If I say Pope St. Aaron the first, you know who I'm talking about. Moses Aaron. Oh, yeah. I yeah. thought there was another reference no, that no. I didn't get. No? <laughs> yeah, Moses Aaron. The Aaron. Right. A Aaron. Okay. So – and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. They walked in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they were blameless. Now they were without child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Okay. So Zechariah is a priest of Israel. He's not the high priest, but his wife is from the family of the high priest. Okay. She's not ordained to ministerial duty in the way that he is, of course. But She's from the priestly class, but she's not ordained. True, but she's not just from the priestly class. She's from the high, high priestly, priestly part of the priestly caste. Yeah. So okay. that's a big deal. Yeah. And the, the division of Abijah, there were 24 of these groups. So basically, what it meant to be a priest in the uh, Old Testament world was that you would essentially come up to Jerusalem for two weeks out of the year to do your shift, right? The high priest was always there, and there were priests in the Sanhedrin oh, that, really? that were work-a-day priests. So, like, there's, But you so know, he doesn't—Zachariah doesn't do this for a living full-time? He's he not, does not. Really? And we know that definitively because he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in the hill country of Judea. Huh. That'd be a heck of a commute every day, right? I guess so. So they would come for two weeks out of the year, and they would— Do priestly duties. They would do the priestly things. They would offer sacrifice. They would do other things. They would lead songs. They would offer incense. They would do the priestly things. And then when their two weeks were up, they'd go back home. And the next shift would come in, right, of the 24 shifts. Did he have a trade? What did he do the rest of the time? That I don't know. That's super. And maybe there are traditions that suggest what he did, but I I don't know. But it says something different about the priesthood, doesn't it? Yeah. That he he had another job. And it was like being in the the reserves or something. So you're two weeks of active duty, you're up, and you go. So when we meet him, he's on duty in the and that's temple. important in the temple. So verse eight, it says, now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, so during these two weeks, and I don't yeah. know if they were split up over the course of the year or, or what, I don't know how the two weeks were split, but he's in Jerusalem. So presumably this is a big deal for the family, right? Or the couple, because they get to go to the big city, you know, they get to probably stay in a hotel, you know, whatever it was, you're in the big city, you're in from the country. It's, it's a significant time of the year. Yeah. So during the like kind of big deal time of the year for these guys, he says, according, verse nine, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple and to offer the incense and to burn incense. That is a hugely big deal. And depending on where you know you all go to church, you may see incense more than other people, but incense, I don't know. I see it a lot. I work at a seminary. There's incense coming out of our ears. If you were chosen as a priest to offer incense, it was the most important thing you would ever do in your priestly career. Wow. And this could, is his moment. And you could only do it once. It's literally a once Whoa. in a lifetime thing. If you ever got to do it, you could never do it again. Wow. And every time you see casting lots in the Bible, unless the, I, there's some exception that I can't think of, 99% of the time it has to do with priestly duties, which oh. reminds us of Jesus when they're casting lots for his garments. Yeah. It's actually a priestly act. Oh, So they're casting lots. He is chosen. He gets the biggest straw, I suppose, or whatever whatever the lots actually are. And he gets to go into the into the uh, temple to do this. Now, why is it the biggest deal? Why can you only do it once? Because remember, in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, and that was where it was believed the presence of God dwelt physically, tangibly. Now, the temple is understood to be vacant at this time, but that's still God's house, Yeah, which is kind of a terrifying reality. And it's the- like
0: if you go near the tabernacle on Good Friday or Holy Saturday that's like
1: – the blessed sacrament's not reserved there, but it's still the tabernacle. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. actually a really good analogy. I was thinking of like if your parents are out of town. you're No, I like to mine more, that. okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. But still, only the high priest, who's singular, and only once a year on the feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, only he is allowed to go in the Holy of Holies. And that once a year when even the high priest is allowed to go in, the tradition says they had to tie a chain around his waist in case he was like struck dead while he was in there because nobody else is allowed. Wait, to I don't understand. It. Is that where is going? So in there is the I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. So there's the Holy of Holies, which Zechariah is not allowed to go into. No human beings allowed to go into, except, except the for the high, high priest, priest one, and time. Only one time a year. Is that where the cloud is? If there's a cloud. Yes. Okay. Correct. Correct. And that's also where the Ark is. Okay. That's not where Zechariah is. Zechariah is right outside of that door. Okay. And there was a giant veil. The historian Josephus tells us about this. That was probably the veil that was ripped into when Jesus was crucified, that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer courts. And it looked like the sky. Yeah, it had the the, uh, the constellations on it. Yeah. So the temple or the altar of incense is right outside of that. So this is a big deal because there's two reasons. Number one, Zechariah gets to go closer to where the presence of God is than any other human being short of the high priest. Yeah. So that's a big deal. And what it meant to offer the incense meant his job was to offer the prayer, the communal prayer of the people of Israel. Right. Mm. That's his job at that moment. That's his task is the sacrifice either before or after the sacrifice is made. His job is to offer the incense, which represents the prayers of Israel rising up like a sweet aroma before God. Right. So that's what he's doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So in the most important two weeks of his year on the most important, presumably day of his life, here's what happens. Uh, I'm in verse 10 says the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense because that's what you do. You pray and you know that there's one guy inside who is praying on your behalf. So there at the hour of incense, verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. So on the most important two weeks of his year, on the most important day of his life, an angel shows up, which is you know, a big deal. This is escalating. Uh, an angel showed up at the right side of the altar of incense and Zechariah was rightly troubled when he saw him, right? And some fear, fent- I, you're freaked out anyway because you're right next to the presence of God, which, as far as you know, could come back at any moment, and maybe you're going to be struck dead. I mean, there, there's a there's a passage in Second uh, Samuel where somebody gets a little too close to the Holy of Holies and they touch it wrong and they're struck dead. So I mean, Whoa. this is a scary place. The scary thing. So an angel shows up. That's freaky. He's troubled. He's freaking out. And the angel verse thirteen said to him, "Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Be not afraid." For your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. I've heard this story a million times, but it wasn't until a few years ago that I, I think I heard it rightly. So remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were set up by Luke. Um, he goes out of his way to say that they were righteous. They walked in the commandments. They were holy. They, you know, followed all the ordinances. They were perfect. Why does Luke need to go out of his way to point out all this, all those things to you? Maybe people thought that Elizabeth was barren because they were doing sins? Yeah. I mean, that was the cultural understanding. It's not biblical, but the cultural understanding is if God didn't bless you with children, you probably did something to deserve it, Mm -hmm. right? You probably messed up somehow. So Luke goes out of his way to show that they are holy, they are righteous, they are blameless, and that's not the reason that they are barren. That's not the reason they're infertile, in other words. So the angel shows up. He says, your prayer is heard, and you're going to have a son. So the question is this. What is the prayer that has been heard? To have a son? I think most of us think that. That's what I always thought. But what is Zechariah doing at that moment? He's offering the prayers of the people of Israel. Which is some version of how much longer? Praying for the
0: return of the
1: presence presence of of God God to the temple, which would be the sign of the restoration of Israel. Wow. And notice the language of the angel. He says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard and you're going to have a son. The son is the icing on the cake. Right. Oh, okay. So there's two things. So in other words, when he says your prayer has been heard, the prayer that he's offering at that moment is the "How long until you return to us, O God?" prayer, and you're going to have a son, icing on the cake, Zechariah. Your personal intention will also be fulfilled, and he's going to be the means to this coming about, which is cool, right? Yeah. And then he goes on to describe uh, John, and it, it talks. It actually puts John in terms of what are called the Nazarite vows. Uh, which show up in the Old Testament. In other words, John is going to be set apart. He's going uh-huh. to take certain vows to be set aside for a special work of God, which we'll see it played out when he becomes John the Baptist. I want to jump down to verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, "'How am I supposed to know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years.'" So Zechariah gets the announcement of not only his lifetime, but the lifetime of all of his people, and his response is somewhat sarcastic. So his being afraid at the beginning is not a problem.
0: But why does he ask a question? It seems like he's asking a
1: question about the baby instead of the coming of Israel. That's a good question. Or the coming of the presence of God. I think that's a great question, and I think that's the right question. I think, and again, I'm not trying to put words into Zechariah's mouth or thoughts into his heart, but... It seems to me that part of the problem is he's focusing on the little piece at the expense of the big picture, which mm. is what we often tend to do. Well, okay. What about this little thing? That doesn't make sense to me. And God just told him he's going to save the world. And maybe it's a lack of understanding on Zechariah's part. Mm-hmm. But the reason I think that it makes sense – so so I don't know. I don't know. Is Zechariah just um, you know being tunnel-visioned here on the thing that he really wants? Has right. he missed the big picture? Is he misunderstanding what the angel is saying? I'm not sure. Yeah. Could he have heard – your prayer has been heard the way that – I thought of it, which is the thing you've been praying for, having a baby? I think he could have. Okay. I, I think all of those are valid options. But the angel is going to show him why that's not enough. So he's upset about this. And he's he seems skeptical. And I think he's skeptical because we know he's punished for it. Mm-hmm. And so whatever he's saying, he, he does something wrong. Right. Something's right. wrong in his heart. Something's uh-huh. off here. Right? So how am I supposed to know this is true? I think there's a lot of things wrapped up in that question. I think his personal intention is there. But I wonder, and I have to think, I mean, Israel has been waiting for a really long time for these things to come true. It's been hundreds of years. And I bet, you know, I, we all have petitions that we've been praying for. We all have baggage or struggles in our lives that I wonder if God showed up tonight and told me, hey, Scott, this thing that you've struggled with or this thing that is a, a, a grief for you, I'm solving it now. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be ready. You know, I think there's a part of me that would be like, I'll believe it when I see it. I have prayed yeah, for this a lot. Right. You know, pick, pick the thing in your life. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to to Zechariah, and the, then the angel answers. The angel answered him. So, in other words, he said, "How am I supposed to know this?" And his answer is, "Cause I'm Gabriel." Because I'm ga- right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a lousy answer, isn't it? Well, I mean,
2: Japan's it's really-
1: not a lo- Sorry, that's. Uh, let me change that wording. I'm sorry, <laughs> Jesus. It's not a lousy answer, but it, it seems like a confusing answer. Sure.
0: I mean, I guess, I guess if
1: I was like, well, tell me that it's true. And then an angel was like, I'm an angel. But he doesn't say because I'm you. an angel. True. He says because yeah. I'm Gabriel. Yeah. No, the implication is that he's an angel. We, yeah. we know that. But that's not his – it's not – his reasoning is not because I am an angelic being sent by God to assure you. It's because I'm Gabriel yeah. specifically because God didn't send anybody. He sent Gabriel. So the only other time Gabriel is mentioned in – Gabriel shows up three or four times. So he shows up a lot here in the Gospel of Luke. He appears to Mary uh, right after this, to the Blessed Mother for the Annunciation. He appears to, to Joseph when he's freaking out. And the only other time, aside from Zechariah, that I'm aware of Gabriel showing up is in the book of Daniel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I want to turn there real quick. And um, something happens in the book of Daniel that I think really informs this scene. And the scene doesn't make any sense without Daniel. So I'm in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel, quick crash course on Daniel. Daniel, we talked about the exile. We talked about Ezekiel's vision when he sees the presence of God leaving. Um, Daniel was in the first wave of the exiles that were taken by Babylon. And he's taken in one of the first waves because he's a skilled bureaucrat and they basically want him to put to work. They, they like Which to, they
0: do and he becomes kind of important and becomes the sort yeah. of head bureaucrat of the king. Right? He's a slave
1: bureaucrat right. essentially of, of the king. Yeah, that's exactly right. And part of the book of Daniel, what it's trying to I'd work. I'd like to imagine some civil servant listening to this show. Tell me about that's it. My guy. Yeah, that's right. that's, I kind of yeah. was thinking that when I said it. Um, but it's, it's a question of, you know, how do you act in faith? How do I live as a faithful follower of Yahweh in the midst of a corrupt culture in a midst of a place where I don't want to be? Yeah. So I I think there is spiritual application to that. Um, but what happens to Daniel is this, he, uh, I'm going to drop in, in chapter uh, nine, verse one, he says in the first year of Darius. So again, Daniel's trying to work through how do I live faithfulness? Even though I've lost Israel, it's gone. My home is gone. My people are gone. God seems like he abandoned us. And it says in the first year of Darius, the son of Ashurus, the, the Mede King who became King over the realm of the Chaldeans. So that's Babylon, which is actually present day Iraq, which is why Catholics in Iraq are called Chaldean. Chaldean Catholics. So in the first year of his reign, he says, I Daniel perceived in the books, the number of years, which according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That's a convoluted sentence, but in simple form, what is Daniel doing? Did you catch it? He's trying to figure out how long, O oh Lord. Uh-huh. He says he's reading the books and he's praying and he's reflecting and he's, he's reading Jeremiah. To figure out. Okay. How long are we stuck in this? How yeah. long are we in exile? How uh-huh. long will this last? And he said, "I read Jeremiah and I perceived through Jeremiah seventy years. Okay, that's how long, O oh Lord, All that right. we're going to be stuck here." And so he's probably feeling okay about himself. Like, and, okay, yeah, he, hey, <laughs> I got it. Seventy years, yeah. good, to, good to know. But then we fast forward to verse twenty, and in verse twenty, I'm still in chapter nine. It says, "While I, this is Daniel speaking." While I was speaking and praying, while I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, while I was presenting my supplication before the Lord, um, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, and it goes on to say it was at the hour of the evening sacrifice. So, at this moment where we drop in the story, Daniel is praying on behalf of the people of Israel. Oh, much like Zechariah. Much like Zechariah. What time? It says the hour of evening sacrifice, which would be the oh, hour of the like incense. much like Zechariah. Exactly the same thing that Zechariah is doing. We, we know that Daniel would actually situate himself by his window and point his body where the temple oh, used yeah, to be that's right. as a way of trying uh-huh. to trying to live what Israel was supposed to live. So while he's doing that, it says while he's speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel whom I had seen at the vision earlier in the book, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he came and he said to me, Oh, Daniel, I have come now to give you wisdom and understanding. So at the beginning of your supplications, your prayers, a word went forth and I've come to tell it to you because you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the, vi- the word and understand the vision. So in other words, you were praying about how long and I've come to give you some insight. In other words, there's good news and there's bad news. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that you got the math wrong. That 70 is not quite accurate, but verse 24, it says 70 weeks of years, 77s of years. So in other words, 77, 70 weeks is 490 years, mm-hmm. in fact, are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity and to bring in both everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. So in other words, Daniel at the hour of evening sacrifice, praying on behalf of Israel, asking how long, O Lord? is told by Gabriel it's going to be about 490 years. Yeah. Which gives you a pretty distinct time frame as far as the how long, O oh Lord. The problem with Daniel, and scholars debate this endlessly, no one knows exactly where the clock kind of starts and stops in Daniel. Because oh. there was a 70 years, and they're in physically in Babylon for about 70 years. But we know that once they leave Babylon and come back to the Holy Land, exile's not really over. And we know that the exile is not really over because there's still a foreign occupier over us. The Lord's presence has not returned to the temple, and we don't have land or kingdom or blessing. And is it possible that
0: that's a bit of an like couldn't that just be kind of like 70 times 7, like a a long time? I mean, is it being overthought to be analyzed in that way?
1: It would be being overthought to be analyzed in that way if you didn't know that it actually puts you squarely in the time of Jesus.
0: Yeah, sure. And
1: that the time actually works. So the problem with Daniel—so there there is something symbolic to it, too— but I think there's two levels. Like there, there is a sense of like it's a really long time, seventy times seven. Yeah. But there's also the sense that even the, there's always a literal sense to scripture and a spiritual sense yeah. to scripture, and both are actually meant to be respected. So nobody, because we don't know where the clock starts, nobody knew exactly when the Messiah was supposed to come, but everyone knew the ballpark. Yeah. In other words, mm-hmm. everybody knew the general time frame. They yeah. knew because of another prophecy of Daniel that it would be the reign of probably the Roman Empire because he explains to you the litany of the different kingdoms and empires that are going to rule the earth before the Messiah comes. And then he gives you the time frame. And again, it's not exact, but it's pretty darn close. And so when Zechariah is in the temple doing exactly what Daniel is doing, the evidence that the angel gives for the accuracy of his statement is, because I'm Gabriel. In other words, I'm the one that gave Daniel the time frame to begin with. Yeah. How are you supposed to know that what I'm saying is true? Because I gave you the time frame. That's me, which is remarkable. So that puts us back with Zechariah. And again, I I think there's a lot of layers to the history going on here. But I do think the spiritual – I don't know, take the spiritual application for what you will. But where I see this in my own life is, like I mentioned before, what if God did show up and say that the long-awaited thing that you need out of your life or this thing that you struggle with, it's done now. I think I might respond more like Zechariah and say, I'm just, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. What's interesting about what happens to Zechariah, because what happens after this? Do you remember to Zechariah? He, he he can't speak. Yeah, he struck mute, which mm-hmm. to me is an interesting punishment. And I know it's there's a real level of punishment to it. But at the same time, as a profound introvert, that sounds pretty nice to me on some uh-huh. level, right? I just don't have to talk to anybody. Uh-huh. So it is a punishment, but it's a punishment that feels more like a retreat. It's not like you know a lightning strike or boils. Yeah, right. It's not like a, a, a wrathful punishment in sense. And it a seems especially
0: sense. like when your wife is pregnant, if you can't <laughs> yeah. possibly say the wrong thing, you might be very blessed.
1: Right? He's struck mute for nine yeah, months, right. the exact mm-hmm. duration of his wife's pregnancy, which I'm sure Elizabeth loves. Yeah. So, but th- there's a problem embedded in this. And I, this is where I want to jump and ahead to the, the end of that. And again, I, ca- I call it a punishment, but again, it's like Jesus, it, God is asking Zechariah to go on a long retreat, mm-hmm. a long, silent retreat. Yeah. To not just because I'm mad at you, but to reflect on what I've said and actually work this out. It's, there's, there's something gracious and really merciful about what God says, because he's saying, I want you to have time to work this out. Because yeah. what I said is true and it's not an anger, but it's a, work this out because you're going to yeah. need to understand this. Yeah. So for nine months, he has struck mute. But what that means, the problem with this is that his other job, there's another component to his task that day. So he was called to go in the temple and offer the incense, the prayer on the bath of the people. But then after doing that, remember the crowd is all gathered. The multitude is gathered outside. And so part of his job is to come out then into the crowd and to offer the final benediction. He was to uh-huh. offer the, uh, the Aaronic blessing, not the ironic blessing, but the, the blessing of Aaron, right? Yeah. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. So that's precisely what Zechariah cannot do. Oh. He can't complete the liturgy. He yeah. can't finish his task. And so nine months pass. Well, what happens? Well, what happens is that nine months pass and we uh, drop down. Well, hold on. Yeah, yeah. Verse 22, Luke 1, verse
2: 22.
0: Okay. When he came out, he could not speak to them. Yeah. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. Yeah. That seems like a big <laughs> jump. Like, okay, so it's the end of Mass. We've, we're It's time for the post communion prayer. Father stands up. Ah, ah, ah. It is not going to be my first thing to think, well, I guess he saw a vision when he received Holy Communion. I mean, it just, that seems like a big jump. It's not no? as.
1: No, I don't think it is a big jump. I'll, I'll grant you that to some degree, but I don't think it's as big a jump as it seems. And the reason it's different is that. When father is offering mass and, and maybe we should have more of a sense of this and we don't, but I think Jesus is, he tore the veil to actually, uh, heal some of this in us. When father goes to put the Eucharist back in the tabernacle at the end of the Eucharistic liturgy, we're not all sitting there with bated breath, wondering if he's going to get struck dead by doing sure, that okay. in sheer terror of what might happen if he missteps, yeah. right? Which rightly or wrongly, that was the, the mentality He's next to the Holy of Holies. God could come back. He could misstep. He could accidentally go in there. All sorts of spiritual and temporal realities could befall him. And they're waiting outside with literally with bated breath. Is he going to make it? Is he going to come out? And so when he comes out and something has been transformed in him, the right response is, oh, God has done something. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I, there's a logic to that, so I don't yeah. think it's as much of a jump as it okay. seems. Thank you. If you understand the gravity of what they're expecting, yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's there's a little bit of both hand. But we drop back in the story in verse 57. So we we read. Hold about, on one second. Oh yeah, yeah. Verse 24. Oh
0: my gosh. Scott's laughing because a few minutes ago I signaled to him that we need to start wrapping up the show, and now I'm asking questions. But verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. So the the announcement was not. Your wife is pregnant. The announcement is effectively, your wife's going to get pregnant."
1: Yes, that's true. OK. So this is not a
0: miraculous: No, I knew that it was not a miraculous <laughs> conception, I know. but I, I had wondered if it preceded the announcement or not.
1: It's, it's un, it does say after these days. it's unclear though exactly how many days that is i see okay could have been that, you know, that night or the next day I, it, it's just not clear yeah
0: and it's none of our business maybe scott i'm <laughs> going to stop asking <laughs> it's this probably it's not pr- our it's business. between Zachariah and elizabeth
1: but yeah you don't get the sense that he is told hey your wife is currently pregnant right and even what the what gabriel says is in the future tense your wife will conceive well there's and bear a, a son. kind of there's a
0: kind of um there's no way in which when he when they got home and you know, had a glass of wine, and one thing led to another. He wasn't, like, keenly aware of this and, and either confident in God in a certain way or, or wondering, was this all in my head, but then I can't speak? I mean, it's just, like, all of that is just this period of just— until they know that Elizabeth is pregnant, it must be all of this just profound uncertainty about all of this experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I, I think that's a really interesting reflection, isn't it?
0: I mean, I, I've talked with you, just as friends, we've talked about d- different spiritual experiences we've had where afterwards we're sort of like, you know, you can get into your head about like, well, is this a real spiritual experience or yeah. just in my head or is there, what's yeah. the difference right, these right. kinds of things. And all of that must have been true until such Absolutely. time as... It's not because he didn't come home and find visibly pregnant Elizabeth. On the contrary.
1: No, which yeah. I think sometimes we, we want to oversimplify it right. to that yeah. rather than dealing with... Which again... The, the graciousness of God to actually work with that struggling and that question yeah. that He has and actually work work Him through it slowly yeah it's a I think it's a really beautiful reflection right and again it's a necessary reflection because the Gospel of Luke begins with that story yeah. before you get the Holy Family we have to reckon with these guys yeah and that's comforting to me because I resonate with them more than I do the Holy Family it's I hard for me to feel wrap like my I brain. do now yeah
0: well and even not being able to come home and sort of say hey I had this. Vision. Listen to what happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, which again, what did that look like? Did he write it? Did you know? Right. And what was her response? Yeah. Was that frustrating? Was it? You know. Right. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Similar to the story of Jesus's young life, where the Holy Spirit leaves us out of that. Yeah. It's kind of none of our business. Right. But that's where it's interesting to kind of. But but there's all on. this stuff to
0: carry that yeah. is not carrying as the Blessed Mother conceived without. Sin. You know, I that's mean, right. just To carry as a person. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. That's right. right.
0: Without sort of evidence of having seen these things already be manifested in certain ways, right? So then a lot of—except for the experience of being mute, then all that's this is right. sort of doubt and uncertainty. I mean, it's
1: just—yeah. Yeah, you don't get the impression it magically goes away. Right, exactly. Which is why God does this for nine months. Right. Because it's not a lightning bolt that just changes everything at once. Yeah. Which is how most of us work. There's a lot of biblical stories where it seems like, oh my gosh, this just happened. Right. But that's not how my life often looks. And yeah. so again, I take great comfort in Zechariah. Now we fast forward to verse fifty-seven. It says, "The time when Eliz- now the time came for Elizabeth to be delivered, and she gave birth to a son." And so all of her neighbors and her kinsfolk came, and they they hear that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, meaning that her infertility has been healed, and that she has this child. And it's eight days in, so you circumcise a child on the eighth day, and they all were presuming that you're going to name him Zachariah, Zachariah mm-hmm. Junior, because yeah. that's kind of what you do. Pope Saint Zachariah the Second. Pope Saint Zachariah the Second. Yeah. yeah. And she says, "Nope, his name is going to be John." Mm-hmm. Now, it's not an unprecedented name; it's not as prominent in the old as in the new. Uh, but I believe you see it show up in the Book of Maccabees. Oh, okay, there's a, oh. a Jonathan. Um, so, in in the time of Maccabees, and, oh. a couple generations prior, it has prominence.
0: Another Jonathan,
1: you know, the son of son of David. Oh, that John, I wasn't even thinking about that, John. <laughs> yeah, the Jonathan, the son of David. Yeah. So it's it's there. It's it's certainly a name, but it doesn't have enough prominence that it, it seems at least striking to the family. Yeah. Of why are you naming that? But it's also yeah. it's not just, oh, I mean, we, we tend to name children sometimes based on their popularity in the ancient world. You would name it based on family relations. Why would you? It's, it's not that, oh, well, we know that there's some stories of some famous Jonathan's. That's yeah. kind of cool. That's a great idea for a name. It's no one in your family is named that. So yeah. why would you stray from the family lineage? Right? Yeah. Whereas in our
0: circles, it's like, oh, you didn't find an obscure enough saying that to make sure that no one <laughs> Right. <else>. right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, here's little baby Pierre Toussaint. Right, exactly. But yeah. okay,
0: so what, So what is the significance? So
1: it's striking that the name is not a family name, but what is the significance of the name itself? The significance of the name itself is this. Do you know what John means? I do not. So the name John literally means Yahweh has been gracious. God oh. has been gracious. Now, again, at the risk of stretching this a little bit too far, so the first words out of his mouth are what? The first time he can speak, he says, his name is John. So in other words, the first thing out of Zachariah's mouth is the last line of the ironic blessing that he was not able to do nine months prior. Sorry. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Oh. John's name, and again, at the risk of stretching this, John's name is a part of the last part of the priestly prayer, the blessing of Aaron. Well, that's an Advent miracle. Well, what it means then in a certain sense, and again, I'm risking stretching the image too far, but you might say that the birth of John the Baptist then is the conclusion of the Old Testament liturgy. Mm. And his name actually becomes the part of the benediction that closes the Old Testament to usher in the liturgy of the New Testament, the Mm. old temple, the new temple, the old priesthood into the new priesthood. And so John has always been understood to sort of be the bridge figure right. that links the Old well, Testament with the New name. Testament. And even right. in his name, we sort of see this reflected. Wow. So the first words out of Zechariah's mouth are the last words that he should have said at the liturgy. Yeah. Wow. Which closes it. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's kind of cool. Again, you could probably take that image a little too far, but I think there's something poetic about about that name. Who are we going to talk about next week, Scott? So next week, we're going to talk about the the most well-known of the series of couples. We're going to talk about Mary and Joseph. Tune
0: in next week, everybody, for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. You're going to love it. This is a special Advent season of Sunday School a Pillar Bible Study. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by our Sunday School teacher, an ironic liturgy expert himself. Ironic. (laughs) Dr. Scott Powell. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and G.D. Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week.